It happens in the blink of an eye. It felt like we just dropped out of the sky and hit the ground. Immediately inside the plane, total chaos. A moment in time that changes your life forever. When you see the pictures of the car, I don't see how anyone could survive. Often these moments are just the beginning of a new world for the people who experience them. And you know the outcome is going to be drastic, but yet you still know that you have to do it. Each episode of Just a Moment examines someone's life-changing experience and explores how they navigated through that moment to discover a new normal. And I see beauty now. This is me. I promise you will hear compelling, raw stories that may help you navigate through your own life's journey, if you'll give me just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Just a Moment. Working in television news for three decades, I had the privilege to tell a lot of amazing stories. Our role as journalists is to investigate facts, cover all angles, be fair, and develop a clear and compelling story for the viewers. But what are the rules when a news anchor becomes the story? When all the trust, integrity, and respect you've built with viewers is put in jeopardy because your husband is accused of a heinous crime. That's what happened to my friend and former colleague, Marisa Burke, who has written a gripping book about her life-changing ordeal. I'll give you more information on the book after our conversation. I worked with Marisa at WNEP-TV, the ABC affiliate in Scranton-Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. When I was the morning anchor from 1990 to 1994, Marisa was the main evening anchor, a professional, focused journalist who took her responsibility as an anchor very seriously. And to truly understand how traumatizing this event was, we give you a bit of insider information on what it's like sitting at that anchor desk each day, the relationship you develop with your viewers and your sources, the responsibility to show up and perform, no matter how you may be feeling or what's going on in your personal life, and the pressure of being known everywhere you go in public. Under normal circumstances, these are things we embrace. But in Marisa's life-changing moment, all those things added a near unbearable layer of trauma for her and her kids. Marisa had grown up in that area with ambitions to work in television news and specifically to work at her hometown station, WNEP-TV. My dream from the very beginning was to get back home and work for this dynamite station, which everybody knew was the powerhouse, not only in the market, but one of the top ABC affiliates in the country. And it, yeah, it was always my dream. So in 1984 is when you got your opportunity to come back home and work at WNEP. That must've been a, a dream come true. It was a dream come true. I actually found out from my younger brother who was interning at WNEP that the morning co-anchor was leaving and um, he said, why don't you apply for the position? I did. And that's how I got my foot into the door at uh, Channel 16. So you started as the morning anchor there. When I started there, it was a 6.30 to 7 a.m. newscast. 
And I was primarily the morning field reporter. So in other words, if there was a major snowstorm coming, I was live along a road giving road reports and, and, and always out. It was, it was on a rare occasion that I would actually be sitting next to my co-anchor in the morning and, and anchoring the news. And actually, it didn't take you really long to move your way up to what I think many people in television news would consider the pinnacle position, which is the Mm -hmm. evening newscast anchor. Um, When I came in 1990, you had just gotten that job not too uh, long before. I mean, here you are, pinnacle of your career. It only took you, Mm -hmm. you know, less than six years to get there, Marisa. Yeah, I was 29 years old and I was offered the uh, the the coveted six and eleven o'clock anchor position because the 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 woman who was there before me had moved out to Pittsburgh to be with her sportscaster husband. And um it was just an opportunity that I, I could not believe was was facing me. Um, and I was only 29 years old. My predecessor Karen left on a Friday, said goodbye. I was pulled into the news director's office. He said, come Monday, you will be anchoring, co-anchoring the 6 and 11 o'clock news. So you had a whole weekend to wrap your head around it before you had to sit in the anchor chair. Um, But what were your feelings about that? I mean, that had to be kind of your aspiration, working there in your hometown to be the main anchor? It was, but in all honesty, I thought, it happened way too fast in, in a lot of ways. I just was not expecting it. I, I looked at my predecessor and how good a journalist she was and what a terrific writer she was. And I've always had self-doubt about me and my talents. And I just never thought I was good enough with anything. And that's how I felt with this as well. I just thought, I I don't know. I'm... I'm excited. I'm truly flattered and honored, but I don't know if I can be as good as Karen was when she was in that position. I I really felt that, and I was, I was nervous. I was anxious, and but I was I was I was scared. It's a lot of pressure, especially to follow someone who is beloved by the community and by the people that they work with. But when I came there as the morning anchor in 1990, my impression of you, Marisa, was that you had the world by the tail, right? I mean, you, uh, to me, exuded confidence, seemed like you, you had all this wonderful journalistic knowledge that you were absolutely, you know, where you should be and that you were feeling confident and good about where you are. And you're saying that wasn't really what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah. No, it wasn't at all. And, and that is very kind and sweet of you to say, but it, it wasn't like that at all. I, I, again, I, I always, I always second guess myself with everything and it is very humbling. And I, I think, um, you know, because of that, that's why I, I never got really cocky and, and really overly confident about everything. Because I thought, you know, just when you, you think of yourself that way, then something will happen where everything comes tumbling down. 
WNEP was a juggernaut of a station. I mean, I think we got like a 73 share in the morning of right. viewers. I know the evening was um, very similar. Mm -hmm. You know, that is just, I mean, those are unheard of numbers. I know it got a lot of attention from around the country. And you're navigating yourself through this career and your professional life. And it's time for you to kind of think to yourself, okay, what's the next step for me in my mm -hmm. life? And you had a friend that wanted to introduce you to somebody. I had just come back from covering the Republican National Convention um, in Houston in 1992, and we met and it was love at first sight. He was, he was tall, dark, handsome, I fell in love with his sense of humor, um, his personality. It was just, wow, this was the guy I was looking for. And this was the only thing the, that was absent in my life at the time. I had a terrific career. I was making a wonderful salary that was uh, negotiated every few years with a new contract and the increases were terrific. But I'm thinking, wow, if only I found the person of my dreams to, you know, get married, start a family, then everything would be picture perfect for me. And um, six months later, he proposed, we got engaged, and then in July of 1994, we got married. When you are someone who is on the news and people are inviting you into their living rooms every evening, this was a big deal in that area in northeastern Pennsylvania. People were very interested in you getting married um, I had left by then, but I'm imagining this must have been something where they showed video on TV and people were sending you gifts, et cetera. They did. Our, the, the, I think the magical thing about WNEP is we, we, we look at our viewers and think of them as family. And our viewers think us as their family. So we have that magical relationship with the viewers and they are just so loyal. So when there is a life event among the on-air people, we try to share that because we know what it means to the viewers at home. So yes, the station made sure that they sent a camera to where the, the ceremony was taking place, where the reception was taking place. And of course, they show pictures of it on the news that night. And, and, and people, the, the viewers love it because they, they, they have that family relationship with everybody at the station. Yeah, it's like a front row invitation to be, to be right. there and be part of your life. And you all were, you had a happy life. You professionally are fulfilled. You are personally fulfilled. You uh, and... Mark had two daughters, mm -hmm. uh, which I, again, you shared with the viewers and they're feeling like they're part of your family. It's just so special and so personal when, when, when your viewers send you such best wishes after the birth of a, of a child. And you're right, Chris. I mean, you know what it was like. I mean, viewers will we'll, we'll send you 
meaningful gifts. And yeah, it was, it was just so special and so fulfilling. I think it really is. Um, it's, 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 there's no other feeling like it when you have that connection with your television viewers and they show you how much you really mean to them in their lives. Because of this relationship that you had with your viewers, you were very willing to share your family with them mm -hmm. so that people really feel like they are part of your family. And that is a huge responsibility um, to do that. You're really kind of laying yourself open to everyone. In a lot of ways, as, as a, a public figure, um, that, that, um, you're respected in the community. You, you want to share as much as you possibly can, but you know that there also has to be a balance. You don't want to expose everything. When we used to, um, um air the, the annual Christmas parade in downtown Scranton and my children were young and we would put them on the channel 16 float and the camera would get, you know, capture their faces and their expressions as the float would go by. And it was just, it was, it was a perfect time. And they were little, they were, they were just, they were, they were little. Every time you share with the viewers, you just strengthen that bond between your following and the, the folks at the station. So things are really going along well for you. You have the career of your dreams. Your personal life is also a dream for you at that point. You have a husband that you love, two daughters that you're watching grow up and, and everything is what a lot of people would think was perfect. And you really had a bombshell dropped on you. Mm -hmm. Actually, I had, yeah, there were, there were um, some emails that came that first came into and is this 2008, Marisa? This was right. This was right okay. before 2008 that um, I, there were two emails that came into the newsroom um, and they were pretty graphic about my husband and saying to the effect that Marisa should be getting checked for HIV or maybe another social disease because her husband is friends with various young guys at universities where he teaches. And so that was, that was shocking to see. But I felt as though, you know, we were, we, every so often we would just get an email or a message from viewers, you know, saying something about somebody on the air that was just, you know, totally asinine, totally far-fetched. You knew it wasn't the truth. And so I actually dismissed it. I said, you know, maybe, maybe it's just, you know, somebody who's out to get him maybe wants to rile me up because they don't particularly like me. So I just, I just dismissed it. Then in 2008, uh, I was at work and I received a phone call from my husband who said that he was at the district attorney's office in Lackawanna County. And he said, I, I may be in a bit of some trouble. And I said, 
what are you talking about? And he continued and said, well, remember the weekend that you took the girls to Nana's house and it was Mother's Day and I did not go with you because I wanted to get our property ready for the, the summertime. And he said, well, I actually had some guys over. There was a 17-year-old who showed up unannounced and he started drinking and he left the house and then continued to be out all night long when he uh, went, came back to his home in the morning and was interrogated by his mother. He ratted me out and said that he was at our house all night drinking up a storm and the mother contacted the district attorney's office. So I may be in some trouble because he ratted me out and he's blaming me for everything. What was going through your mind when he made that phone call to you and you heard all of that? My heart stopped. I had, I all of a sudden felt sick because I had a terrible knot in my stomach. And, but then I, you know, I, I knew I had to get back to work and I, I thought, well, you know, are you calling an attorney? What are you doing? And, and, you know, he said, well, I, I've got to go. Um, they want me to sign some papers. And I, and I, I remember saying, you're going to sign papers without even talking to an attorney. And he said, well, we'll talk about it later, honey. So I, I got back to, I, I got back to working at my computer my station at the at the, in the newsroom and not long after that I receive a phone call from the assistant district attorney who all of a sudden was handling this case and he's and I know him I knew him through other news stories he's he's a very good uh, prosecutor and he said Marisa you know you need to know something we could charge your husband with corruption of minors because of what we're hearing about this. And I'm thinking, what now what is going on? Because that's not what I just heard from my husband. And then I'm thinking, was he downplaying everything? What was he not telling me the truth? And when, as soon as I heard corruption of minors, you know that corruption, a charge of corruption of minors could carry not only a pretty serious fine, but perhaps a hefty jail sentence. Everything was, I, I, I felt like the, the world around me was just swirling and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of everything. And you're at work at this moment, right? When you and get these I'm at work calls. at this moment, yes. Where were you on believing Mark versus believing authorities at that moment? There were some similarities between the conversation I had with Mark and, and, and the conversation, the brief conversation that I had with the assistant district attorney. But it still just wasn't adding up. And I'm thinking, what in the world happened. I was anxious to see an affidavit of probable cause 
which a few days later, they did send through the mail. And a few days later, we found out that, uh, you know, it, it never got to the point of corruption of minors. And they were looking at the evidence they had. And they came to a conclusion of, well, we'll just charge Dr. Candle with a misdemeanor three count of furnishing alcohol to a minor. I thought, okay, uh, misdemeanor three? Uh, well, if he pleads guilty to this, I guess it's not really all that bad. Um, we'll just chalk it up to um, a bad mistake. We won't try to fight it because if we try to fight it, it, it may turn into something else. So then we thought, okay, we'll, Mark will just sign the papers and that will be it. And boy, was I wrong. At that time, though, this all came out in public. I mean, you, you had, uh, it was reported on by other news sources and by WNEP uh, eventually. So tell me a little bit about how that unfolded and how, right. what people were saying and how you were feeling about kind of being a person on the other side of the news at this moment. What had happened was later on that May, that month of May in 2008, we had already uh, planned on a trip to uh, attend my niece's high school graduation where my brother lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And we started making the trip. And uh, I, prior to that, I had uh, alerted the station that Mark was probably going to plead guilty to a misdemeanor three of furnishing alcohol to a minor. This is what happened. Mark had some folks over for a get together and this 17 year old showed up the exact same story that Mark had conveyed to me. I had done that before we left. I remember the 500 mile trip from Northeastern Pennsylvania out to Ann Arbor. It was tense. I, hard, I, I, I hardly spoke at all to Mark because I was just so, I, I was nervous because I don't know, in the, in the back of my head, I thought, you know, I, I don't have a good feeling about this. Yes, I told my superiors at the station, but I still don't have a good feeling about this. When we arrived in Ann Arbor, my phone rings and I see that it is channel 16 calling. So I went outside and I answered the phone and it was my news director. And he said, uh, I'm here and so is the general manager because we just saw the competition report Mark's case tonight, and they said um, they are really making a big deal out of this. I I just I I just went I went speechless, and I said, "Well, I didn't realize that this was going to blow up like it did." And they said, "Well, no, the competition aired it as the lead story. Mm. They showed the reporter going up to your home." 
knocking on your door like we usually we like we as reporters you know show when when there is wrongdoing and they said marisa this does not look good for you it doesn't look good for mark and yeah they're playing it up because remember he was a former scranton school board director and he's on a number of education boards in the area you know, and everything has to do with children. And now he had, it looks like he is pleading guilty to furnishing alcohol to a minor. Yeah. So now this has become not just a personal heartache for you to work through, but it's also infiltrated into your professional life. What did they do, Marisa? Did they take you off the air or did you continue to work? Well, at that time I had several days uh, vacation because I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan at my attending my, my niece's uh, high school graduation. So I had already had days uh, planned to be off the air, but imagine how suspicious that looked when all of this was breaking here, back, back here in Northeastern Pennsylvania. It's all over the news. It's in the newspapers the next day. Up and I'm off the air. So, and then not to mention the fact that, you know, as the competition had that as their lead story that evening, Channel 16 had nothing. They didn't report on it because I had said to them, oh, I think my husband's just in a tad bit of a pickle with uh, what had happened and this this boy was out to get him and ratted on him and but he's just going to plead guilty to this charge well what i had said and what it really turned out to be in the public eye were two totally different versions so um yeah were they upset with me absolutely they were upset with me because the version that I had given them compared with the version that was going out in the public on the competition and in newspapers and, and, and online. Um, it was far, far different. So now it looks like channel 16 is trying to protect me by not reporting anything, but by seven, by their seven o'clock news that night, they were starting to change course and they had to report it. Um, we, we, and, and then not to mention that uh, the, the, don't forget the competition and all the newspapers, they were tying my name into this because it was the husband of Channel 16's Marisa Burke. And so there's the downside of right of being the notable person, being a local celebrity, being a person uh, who shares their lives with their viewers. And now all of a sudden there are just things you do not want to share. Channel 16 does something that's very unique, and that is every evening they put comments on from viewers. They can call in and record their comments, and they put them on and hear what people are saying. And they actually, they call it talkback. They actually did a talkback related to these charges. What were people saying in the talkback, and how are you feeling at that moment? 
Well, what they were saying was, oh, now that the shoe is on the other foot, what, you can't say what happened to Marisa Burke's husband? What are you trying to hide? Why aren't you reporting this? Why are you protecting her? Hey, you know what? Now that the shoe's on the other foot, uh, why, why aren't you open about this? The station was criticized in, in a big kind of way because it appeared as though they were trying to keep the news from their viewers about my husband's wrongdoing. Was there any personal blowback on you from viewers as far as how could she not know? Why is she defending him? Those types of things? Absolutely. I think from the very beginning, there were there were folks criticizing me. Oh, you know, again, oh, how does it feel, Marisa? You know, you report on on a, uh, a people in trouble with the law every single day. So how does it feel for you now that your husband was caught furnishing alcohol to a minor? And there was quite a bit of that and criticism. And all of a sudden, the love and admiration that you have from your viewers that or that you think you have has turned into suspicion and um, and distrust. And that is the worst possible feeling as somebody on air who is supposed to be uh, revered as, as, a, as a, a wonderful journalist. Did I still support him and love him and trust everything that he was saying? Absolutely. Yeah. He had given you no reason not to trust him up to that point. Right. When we're also talking about trust, you had spent more than two decades building trust. I mean, trust is the currency of a journalist, right? So mm -hmm. you had spent all this time building that. How did you deal with that feeling the stares that you might get from people in public, the whispers you might hear as you're walking in public or with your girls that people might be saying things. I'm sure it wasn't, not everybody was doing it. There are a lot of supportive people as well, I'm sure, but there had to be a little bit of that. And how did you navigate that, Marisa? Yes, I, things suddenly changed. We, we had neighbors who we, wouldn't even look our way anymore. Um, almost like we had some dreaded disease that they wanted to stay away. I would walk into supermarkets and people would look and then they would turn and whisper and then walk away. It's devastating. It was devastating to me. I, you know, again, people, people loved the station I worked for and loved the people on air. And I, and I had that special relationship for so many years. And then for this to happen and people ostracizing you, it, it's a feeling like no other. It's, it, there's a feeling of desperation, um, but there's such a feeling of being, of emptiness as well. And um, not to mention the betrayal. At this point, though, you still are thinking that this is a one-off, that this kid came to a party that he wasn't supposed to be at. He had some alcohol. This is what it's turned into. There was a point where you were actually investigated. 
Mm-hmm. And your girls were also questioned because they were wondering if there was child abuse going on in the household. And that exactly. had to be a nightmare for you. Yes. I was called into the district attorney's office because they were wondering if I had known anything about this. And I think at the same time, they were um, looking at some other things that um, were giving them suspicions about, well, perhaps this might be more than just a case of furnishing alcohol to a 17-year-old. And um, on the girls' last day of school, I found out that uh, investigators from the district attorney's office were coming to my home and they were going to confiscate electronics, including computers, iPads, cameras, that sort of thing. I mean, I my heart broke because they even confiscated my little girl's uh, instant cameras that, that they had, they, they loved to just go around and take pictures. They even confiscated them. And I remember when the investigators turned up at my house and they said, well, we can do this one of two ways. We can go and get a search warrant from a magistrate, but everything will be public record. And therefore the media will find out about this again, or you can sign these papers right in front of us and we will confiscate, you know, item A, B, C, D, E. I mean, there were two pages of things that they wanted, they wanted uh, us to sign. And they said, and we, if you consent to the, 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 us confiscating all your electronics, then it will not be public record. I tried desperately to call my attorney, um, and then Mark's attorney, no answer, no answer. So the, the feeling of desperation was just, it was out of control. And I, I felt like I was in the deep end of a pool and just drowning. And then they, they went ahead with the, with the, with the raid and they, they, and they went all over the house as well and took pictures of the house. They went downstairs in the basement um, took, took, and I, I, and I was so angry at the same time. I, I followed them everywhere where they were going in the house, taking pictures. And I felt, I remember feeling so violated because I, I tried to protect my privacy as far as my home and, and things like that. And now I knew that these investigators from the district attorney's office were there taking pictures of everything that, that I, I tried to protect as far as being so private. And it, it, was, it was just the worst feeling. Then, um, after they were finished, um, I, I overheard one of them say, well, they're on their way. And at first, I thought, oh, my word, somebody tipped off the media. And I thought that I would be seeing news vehicles and live trucks coming into the neighborhood. And as it turned out, it was a a caseworker from the Children's Advocacy Center in Scranton. And she showed up and and she said, "The the assistant district attorney is demanding that your husband leave the house now until we finish 
an investigation into whether your girls have been abused by your husband. And when they, when she said that it was, it was like everything fell in. I, I, it was just so surreal. And I, I just could not believe what was happening. The tears were flowing. Uh, Mark had, had been outside with the girls trying to calm them down. They, they step into the house, they start getting emotional. And then at the same time, we have this caseworker sitting at my kitchen table saying, I am not leaving until your husband gathers his belongings and I see him leave your house tonight. So are you angry at the authorities? Are you angry at Mark? I would say I was more angry at the authorities at this point because I really, I, I didn't understand what was going on and what was making them so suspicious. Um, it, it just wasn't adding up. And I, the, the anger that I had for the, the prosecutors, the district attorney's office, the caseworker from the Children's Advocacy Center, it was just building and building and building so much that I, I thought my insides were going to explode. And it never crossed your mind. It never, you never thought to yourself that your girls might be in some kind of danger or that he might be abusing them in some way. Absolutely not. The, he was a wonderful daddy. He was, he took care of them. He, when they were little, he, he was there for them when I had so many commitments with work and, and between anchoring and, and social commitments and, and extra station activities that I, that I could not ignore. He was there. He basically, he helped nurture those two girls into, into the, the lovely young women that they are today. So you are still believing there's not really anything more to the story. And so you're angry. You feel like they're digging or trying to uncover something that's not really there. That's not really there. Absolutely. I was thinking, you know, the, the prosecutors have, uh, have it out for us. I, I kept on saying it's a prosecutorial witch hunt because of who we are. We were a high profile couple. How long did it take them to do the child abuse investigation with your kids? And when was he allowed to come back home? How long was that period? He had to, he had to live away from home for a while, correct? Right. We had in that follow that following June, as we did every summer, we were looking forward to our annual trip to to vacation in uh, um, on the Gulf Coast in Florida, where his parents had a condominium. And I had mentioned to the district attorney's office that we had plans to travel to Florida again. And what was, was this investigation going to be wrapped up? They said to me, well, uh, we, will, we will allow you to continue with your trip, but you need to bring the girls into the advocacy center to be examined. And I said, well, what do you mean by examined? And I did not know until I walked into the Children's Advocacy Center 
that an examination meant them looking at them physically and looking at their private parts and then taking them from the exam room to uh, a room where they were questioned and they were interrogated by a forensics expert about their father. They were only 11 and they were only 12. And so they, they, they still had that innocence. And when, you know, I, I told them, I said, we have to do this or else daddy is not going to be able to come with us to Florida. But um, I really had no idea what, uh, what was ahead of us until I arrived at the Children's Advocacy Center that day. And the director had spelled out, well, this is the way it's going to go today. And my heart as a mother just dropped because I'm thinking, all, is, this, is this how they're going to all of a sudden become women? Is this how they're going to uh, graduate into womanhood that they're going to be examined down there? And how far is the examination going to go to this day i ask my 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 children do you what do you remember from that day can you tell me what what they how the exam went and to this day they they keep it to themselves Mm. which in a way breaks my heart so that trip to the Children's Advocacy Center, the examination there, that was just one part of the investigation. This went on for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, at the it, end, they found what? They did not find that much. They had confiscated all of our electronics, and we heard nothing after that. And we were allowed to go to Florida And then it was toward the end of our vacation in Florida. And we were, my, my children, we were at a a restaurant right along the beach, along the Gulf. And my two girls were down by the surf collecting seashells and my phone rang and it was my younger brother. And he said, did you see the Scranton times today? And I said, no, Tim, we're, we're on vacation. I don't want to know anything about anything in, in news while we're here. I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying to recover what has happened. And he said, well, there is an article that details a conversation between Mark and supposedly the 17-year-old involved with his furnishing of alcohol case and there is a very graphic conversation that apparently Mark had with this teenager about his grooming practices of his private parts. And it goes into detail. And when he, when my brother told me this again, I, I, I had that sick feeling just overcome my body once, once more and I, I was there sitting in shock. Everything was just, it was so good up to that point. We were enjoying our vacation and then boom, another missile comes at me. So I hang up the phone from my younger brother and I looked at Mark and I said, 
This is what the Scranton Times is reporting today. What is this about? And without skipping a beat, he said, you know, that conversation, that was a while back, and it's just locker room humor. That's all it is. It's guys talking to other guys, and that's the kind of conversation you have. And he immediately dismissed it. And was there anything in you at that time, any inkling of, am I really getting the true story? Did you truly believe him? And are you thinking to yourself, when is another shoe and another shoe and another shoe going to drop? Because every time you think you kind of have it buttoned up, things keep dropping. I look back at 2008 and I have to say he was a master of coming up with excuses and explanations that were so convincing. And I, I believed him. I did because he never, he, 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 he was, he was just so convincing as a husband, as a father, as an educator. And I just did not see that side of him at all. I really didn't. And that's why in 2008, I continued to support him. I was devoted to him. I loved him. It was horrible after he was sentenced for his misdemeanor three of furnishing alcohol to a minor that he was on house arrest for three months. And as much as, it, it, as I was embarrassed about that, it, it still broke my heart that this guy couldn't leave the house for three months, um, you know, and, and remember as his case was proceeding in the courts, every time uh, there was an, a development with either a guilty plea or he was going to be sentenced, it was on the news again. But even so, I, 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 I believed him because he was believable. And WNEP really stood by you. You kept your job. They supported you and your position with all of this. When I returned from my Florida vacation that summer in 2008, the day I got back to work, which was so awkward in itself because remember, they had seen the piece in the newspaper about this graphic conversation between this boy and my husband and what it looked like as far as, you know, totally sinister on the part of my husband. As soon as I walked in that day, the news director came out of his office and said, hey, do you have a moment? He said, well, we're actually going to go to the other side of the building. And, you know, if... Anybody who, who gets those words that say, well, we're going to the administrative side of the building, you know that um, that's, that's not good. That's not a good sign. So we walked to the other side of the building and uh, um, the, there was a person, that the general manager was called out of town on an emergency, but uh, another uh, executive of the station was there. And they sat me down and they said, um, you know, we're, we're not liking the fact that every so often, you know, there's another bomb that drops and we've got to report it 
and uh, you're not telling us what is going on. And I, and I told them, I said, I didn't know about this. So they, 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 you know, they looked at me and we had a conversation and they, um, I had no choice but to sign a form that I believe their legal had drawn up saying that I was going to promise them that if there were any other developments in Mark's case, that I would give them the heads up before they knew about it from another news outlet. And I thought at that time, I thought this was it. I thought this was the beginning of the end of, of a very good career for me. I thought, you know what, they're, they're not going to tolerate this again. As it turned out, they said, how about, you know, we, how about we give you a leave of absence? How about you take, um, I, I believe it was six weeks that they gave me. They said, uh, We'll, we'll give you six weeks. We'll let this calm down. You'll be able to be off with your children. And they said, after he submits his guilty plea, then we will have you back at the station. I gathered my things. Um, I, I hardly said anything to anybody as I left. It was the, the, the humiliation and the embarrassment I just I, I endured just within the newsroom was was excruciating. And I went home and I started a six week leave of absence. And that and during that time, Mark was scheduled to plead guilty to his misdemeanor three. And you realistically at that moment didn't really know if they would take you back after the six weeks or no. not. So that had to be kind of on your mind also. No, I, I didn't have a good feeling. And I remember walking into my home that day and I said the station allowed mom to take some time off just to be with dad and to to be his support and then mark was there and he came out from another room and i turned to him immediately and i said well they're giving me a six-week leave of absence but quite frankly and i looked right into his eyes i said quite frankly i don't know if i will have a job after this six weeks is up that's really scary at the same time, it had to almost be a relief that you didn't have to be there to report on these things as well. That had to be a horrible position for you to be in, to be sitting on the desk while a story about your husband is being read by another anchor. Yeah, it, w it was just, it was, it was such a trying time. And um, Mark had to resign from his, I mean, as soon as he agreed to plead guilty to this misdemeanor three, he had to resign from the intermediate unit. I mean, he could not be in education anymore. And where was he going to go? It, it's not like he could pick up and, and try another job in education. Who, who would even get near him? So it was, you know, his humiliation. I, I was feeling his despair on top of my despair and my humiliation and it, it that summer as as wonderful as it was to be home with my two girls i it, uh, i was i felt so alone and and so isolated and and desperate and and at times i remember trying to reach out to close friends and i would leave messages including a roman catholic priest and 
there was no, there was nothing in return. There were no, there were no messages back. And it was, it was devastating for me. Really isolating. So he pleads guilty. He loses his job. You eventually did go back to work at WNEP. Things settled down a little bit. Mark got another job. Mm -hmm. And a few years later, there is not just a shoe, but a explosion in your life again. It was in October of 2012. We started witnessing vandalism at our home. We started getting toilet paper around our bushes and the property. And I said to Mark, I said, you know, I know it's a few weeks before Halloween, but why is this happening to us and not to anybody else? And again, boom, he comes up with with an explanation of I think they're I think it's just kids from maybe the school district or high school that the girls maybe they're friends with and they they just want to brag that they put toilet paper around Marisa Burke's house. So um, in these weeks prior to the beginning of November, we had also noticed, and when I say we, it's me and my two daughters who are now, or who are now both in high school. And uh, we noticed how he was just so engrossed in social media, constantly looking at his phone, so obsessed with looking at his phone, constantly looking at his phone. And the girls and I started asking, you know, what wh- what is so attractive on your phone? Why are you looking at your phone all the time? You're coming to meals. You're looking at your phone. And the the excuse was, you know, my, my husband was a huge sports fanatic. He could, he could spit out sports statistics like an announcer on ESPN. So he would say to us, just checking scores. I'm just checking scores. That's what I'm doing. I'm just checking scores. And again, we believed him. Um, And then in the beginning of November, that's when everything came crashing down. What happened? I had just finished anchoring the new news. I was walking back from the studio I did not, I never, I never took my phone out with me as they do now um, because I, I just, I had to stay focused and I thought the phone would be a distraction, but I, I came back and I picked up my cell phone on my desk and I noticed that it was, I received a voicemail from my neighbor who lived across the street from us. So I listened to the voicemail and he said, Marisa, I don't know whether you know this or not. But I'm looking out my window and I see the FBI, state police, members of the district attorney's office, local police. They have your home surrounded and it looks like they are breaking down your front door. You thought this was behind you. What is racing through your mind at that moment? Again, I had that that same sickening feeling that I had back in 2008 
I was experiencing all over again. It's like you want to throw up, but, but of course nothing is there, but it's that sick, sick feeling. And then you're just overwhelmed with, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like you, a sudden fever comes on and you get so hot and red and, and you start sweating and, and it, it is, it is the absolute worst feeling in the world. And so at that moment, I walked into the news director's office and I said, you know, without mentioning too much, because I didn't know, um, I said, you know, I think something may be going on in my neighborhood. I just got a phone call that there is police activity. And I said, I'm wondering whether I should go home. Can somebody else cover for me for the six o'clock newscast? Then at the same time, I started trying, I, tr I started desperately trying to call Mark. No answer. No answer. No answer. So I hopped in my car, continued trying to call Mark. No answer. No answer. No answer. I pull into the neighborhood and it seems eerily quiet. And I'm thinking, well, maybe this is a good sign. And I pull into the garage. As soon as the garage door opens, I see Mark's car. So I thought, wow, if he's here at home, why, was not, why wasn't he answering his phone? And I walked in and I, I said to him, I have been trying to call you. Our neighbor across the street called me and said that there was all kinds of police activity at the house. What happened? And he said, yes, they were here. I was upstairs on the second floor and I heard the, the knock on the door, but I couldn't get to the front door quick enough. And that's when they broke down the front door. Mm. And I said, well, what, what is going on? And he said, I'm, I'm not sure, but um, they, 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 confiscated your iPad, they confiscated our computer again, and they took my cell phone. And I, I, I just, I, I'm there in just disbelief saying, but why? What happened? They had to be here for a reason. What did they say? And he said, no, I, they really didn't say that much. Um, but I signed, I signed a paper so that they were able to conduct this raid. And I said, well, wait a minute. You let them into, into the house, confiscate our things again, and you didn't even call an attorney. So right then and there, it seemed as though he was holding back on information. And I'm thinking, it's just not adding up. And why is this happening again? You originally kind of had a they're out to get us mentality in four years earlier when all of this stuff happened because you thought mm -hmm. it was a case of somebody drinking alcohol that shouldn't have been there. He explained it all away and you thought they were blowing something up. As a reporter, as an anchor, we kind of also have that feeling that where there's smoke, there's fire in a lot of cases. This is the second time you've been through this, the second time they've raided your house. Are you starting to think there's something to this? Yes, 
And it was that evening where he, I, I, we were in the kitchen and uh, the, the girls were away and it was just Mark and myself. And this is a, this is a big turning point um, that we were alone, the, just the two of us. And then that's when he, it, it finally came out that he uh, was, he was having communications with young guys, many of them underage. Um, he was um, communicating with them in a sexual nature. And I turned, and he finally said this to me. And he said, um, I think that's why they took my phone because they want to check my phone. They took our electronics because they want to see what I was, what I was saying on, on social media. And I looked at him and I said, so let me get this straight. You were having these inappropriate conversations and communications with underage boys, knowing full well that it was against the law. And he said, yes. And that was the first time that he admitted wrongdoing. That was the moment of my epiphany. And I thought, my God in heaven, was it, did I just miss everything from four years ago? Is this what the prosecutors had suspected four years prior to this? And now it was just coming out again. And now what was it? These teenagers, did they, how much did they contact the prosecutor's office? What did they know? What did their parents know? And and then when he finally admitted and he broke down in tears, I looked at him and I said, I, this time you are on your own. You are not going to drag me into it again. It turned out that he had been doing more than just having phone conversations also, right? So yes. tell me kind of what the eventual charges were against Mark. Well, as the investigation went on, he was sexting underage boys. But he, but the pro, according to the prosecutors, he was also um, preying on them. He was, he was giving them gifts. And this is what the, this is what the teenagers told, told uh, the authorities is that they were receiving gifts from Mark, uh, money, uh, clothes, brand new sneakers. At one point there was, I think one of the boys had even said, you know, he was going to offer, he was going to buy me a cell phone. Um, and, and he, and, and according to the authorities, this is what child predators do. They prey on young people and by showering them with gifts like Mark did in the hopes of sexual favors. And this is what came out eventually in the court papers. It started off as an investigation again with Lackawanna County, but because there was a communication device involved, they bumped it up to the uh, federal authorities and, and then it became uh, a case within uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office. As a wife, the betrayal that you felt just had to be immense. I don't know what was worse. The fact of just the lying, the betrayal, 
the the deceit, him being just somebody leading this double life and having a secret life with with teenage boys, a secret sex life with teenage boys. I don't know what was worse, discovering that and and finding out the truth about that or the all the excuses that he was coming up with. I mean, I remember that night in the kitchen where I confronted him with questions. Are you a pedophile? No. Are you gay? No. And I'm thinking, you know, all this is running through my mind. Did I actually marry a pedophile? Did I marry a homosexual? How much of a sham was my marriage because of this person at the and and then it, it dawned on me i mean I, 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 was this person actually using me as a front to cover up what he was doing behind my back behind the backs of his girls and carrying on these inappropriate relationships with these underagers it was it was just so unbelievable were you mad at yourself? I, I thought, I, I, I kind of looked at myself and said, how, how much of a fool were you all these years? Uh, you know, you, you believed him and you supported him and, and did, you did not give up on him in 2008 for his indiscretions then. And, and, and you, you still, you still loved him and trusted him and believed him. And yeah, you, you, you at some point, and that's what happened to me. You turn to yourself and, and, and say, my God, you know, what mistakes did, did I make? And why didn't I see through this? And why, why wasn't I more aware? And why didn't it, it why wasn't I, trying to make sense, a better sense of what was going on. Why was I, why was I continuing to give him the benefit of the doubt where there may have been warning signs? And I do address this in the book and it's, it's, it's very critical. And I, I, and I don't think, and as a woman, I don't think that I'm, I was the only one to think, you know, I, in, in many ways, I, I didn't know because perhaps I did not want to know. It is so hard to love someone so much, to build a life with someone the way that you had built this dream life with someone. But I know that there will be women who are listening to this, Marisa, who may also be kind of in the same situation, maybe is not as dramatically, maybe they're not news anchors and local celebrities, but they might be thinking to themselves, am I burying my head in the sand about something? Mm -hmm. What signs or advice or words of wisdom could you offer to someone that might hear this? Who may be in a similar situation what should they be looking for? What should you, what could you have seen that you didn't see? I think if you have any, any suspicion whatsoever, any inkling whatsoever, that something may not be right, act on your instincts. 
act on your suspicions. Don't keep it bottled up and don't try to uh, put it aside for the sake of possibly upending your picture perfect life. I mean, we had the beautiful home and I had the great career and we had two beautiful daughters and he had a successful career. And with the way that I was brought up um, in my family, that that's what I wanted. I saw my parents and they had the family and the home and the successful jobs. And I thought, oh my, I want the same thing. I don't want anything to ruin that. And I think we all kind of have that dream that, you know, we want the perfect family. We want the, the beautiful home and to go on the family vacations and to, to basically have it all. And I was not prepared for anything to ruin that. And I think that's why I had such anger um, in, in 2008, when all of a sudden this 17 year old and what it seemed to me was he steps into my our, our lives and totally upends everything. You say in the book, and I'm quoting here, I'm reading this passage. Mark was the one who got in trouble with the law. Mark was the one who pled guilty to furnishing alcohol to minors. But I wore shame and humiliation like a wet woolen coat that I could not shimmy off and leave in a heap on the floor. You are in the position of doing everything right, of trying to do everything right, of building that trust, of having your career, of raising these girls, and still you have these things that you have to wear because of your affiliation with this man you were married to. How did you overcome that? And what kind of grace were you able to give yourself to be able to shimmy off that coat, as you say? First and foremost, you have to get rid of the self-pity. There were, there were years following 2012 where I felt so bad for myself and woe is me and look what happened to my life and my life will never be the same. And, and as much as yes, he changed the trajectory of, of my life and the lives of his, of his children. um, You know, you have to get past that point. You really do. You have to, at some point say, We've, we've got to get beyond this because you know what? You're going to be wrapped up in all this self-pity and then you're going to suddenly realize that you know, you're, you're wrapped up in all of that whereas the rest of the world is looking at you saying it's, you know, it's time to move on. It really is time to move on. You've, you've got to get past this. And I think that's when I realized that maybe – I could share my story. Maybe I could uh, uh, share with others the, the, the turmoil that I suddenly found myself in, but maybe explain what I needed to do to finally make his shame his shame and, and not attach it to myself or my children. And I think it all has to do with putting all of that pity aside, the pity that you have for yourself 
and and the despair and say, you know, life does go on. We, you know, many of us find ourselves in disturbing and, and desperate situations, but but life does go on and, 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 and you do realize that you have to go on for the sake of your children and for your other family members and your friends. You, you just have to, that's life. That's life. And, and, and it's all part of, of the healing process as well. And I think once I realized that and understood that I had to get to that point in order to begin the healing process, and, and I, I, think, I think I was better off for it. But you've got to come to that realization. And that's difficult. Easier as a wife, maybe, and as an adult, to kind of work through this and separate yourself from a husband. But your daughters have one dad and it's him. Mm-hmm. And so what was your process like with them? How, how did you go through that with them? It's still heartbreaking to realize that my uh, younger child actually testified against her own father at his sentencing. And I believe she said to the judge, you know, my dad is the epitome of selfishness. And, and, and it is, it's, it's still heartbreaking to realize that um, somebody in, in 10th grade um, got up and testified in, in a court of law on the day that her father was sentenced, basically telling the judge please throw the book at him because he's just an awful, awful person. And we saw what he did and what he put my, our mother through. And I, I know that it did this, this whole ordeal, this nightmare did scar them. And I, and it scarred me and uh, we will have those scars, I think for the rest of our lives and it's just the, the, the hurt and the betrayal. I, I think in some ways at that time, they were also, they, they, uh, my daughters didn't share a lot with me because I think at, as much as I was trying to protect them from ridicule and humiliation, I think they were trying to do the same thing. They were not sharing a lot with me, maybe what was going on at school to protect me as well. But I think uh, keeping all of that inside, I think in some ways it has manifested itself. Um, my, my, uh, my younger daughter has a bit of a disconnect with me right now. I, I do hope it improves. Um, my older daughter, she's, she, seems, she seems fine but then you don't know. You don't know whether something is going to come out, you know, maybe years down the road. And it's all because of the nightmare that they went through. You and your older daughter chose not to go to the sentencing, correct? I did not go to the sentencing because as I explain in the book, I, I told the federal prosecutor, I said, it will turn into a three ring circus if I'm in that courtroom that day because of who I am, um, high profile person, and the media is going to be looking at me and and getting my reaction and my expression and and they're going to be focused on that. And I said I I can't have that happen. But my uh, younger daughter 
um, decided to go because she was she was so um, adamant about expressing her feelings to the judge and how hurt she was and how her father just completely at that time destroyed his family, destroyed our relationships, just just destroyed so much because of that horrible betrayal. In October of 2013, Mark was sentenced to 14 and a half years in prison. He has to register as a sex offender for the rest of his life. He could have gotten more time in prison. He could have gotten a maximum of 19. Were you disappointed that he didn't get the maximum? Were you fine with the sentence that he received? We were kind of expecting, you know, maybe around 12, 13 years because it was a plea agreement. Um, it, it turned out to be a plea agreement. And anytime there is a plea agreement, you also kind of agree. Um, I, maybe it's an unwritten rule, but you kind of you also kind of agree on the punishment. Uh, both sides do. So we were we were kind of expecting like in the lower lower range. But as it turned out, um, it was pretty significant. Fourteen and a half years for one count of sexting minors and uni and using a communications device to sext minors. That's pretty significant because, you know, there are there are murder cases where uh, a, a defendant doesn't get 14 and a half years for killing someone or for a homicide. He saw Mark as a child predator. And when there is a crime involving children, it's a whole new ball game. So he's sentenced to federal prison and you still are not officially divorced at this time. So he goes to prison and you're still married to him. And not only are you still married to him, he's fighting you for material property in yes. the divorce. Yes. So it's kind of like add insult to injury. You've upended my life. And now, you know, I'm going through this. How did you navigate through that, through your feelings with all of that, Marisa? I thought for sure that he would have some sort of compassion that he would just allow me to get a divorce and just turn to me and say, you can have everything for what I put you through and for what I put the girls through. Take everything. You take the house. You take everything. You take, I don't care. I ruined your lives. Well, it did not go that way. Um, and the reason it did not go that way is because the uh, attorney that he got for the divorce really pushed him and said, you know, your wife all these years, she was the breadwinner. OK, she's trying to break this legal contract and you really deserve uh, a lot more out of this because you raised the girls when they were little and you devoted all your time to them when she was anchoring the late news and she wasn't home in the evenings. You took care of those girls. You deserve a lot more. Well, regardless of what you you did as far as, uh, you know, the, the, the federal charges, it doesn't matter. Now we're looking at this legal contract. You deserve a lot more. And guess what? We're not going to roll over on this. We're going to fight her. That had to be infuriating. Uh, it, again, I think it, it was just so shocking and 
unbelievably excruciating for me, both on a on a on an emotional level and on a physical level. I just, again, I, I could not believe that after all this trouble that he put us through and how he just upended our lives and for him to take this stance and go along with his divorce attorney and he basically uh, filed a countersuit, um, you know, disputing the the divorce. And I don't want to give all of it away because it's really riveting the way you unfold it in the book, Marisa, but he, it turns out, had also stolen a lot of money that was your property um, as he was kind of living this charade. And um, so you ended up being able to get all this legal stuff done. And December 15th, 2014, you sign your divorce decree, you're a free woman. How long did it take you to start thinking about putting this all down as a book? Well, I had that thought um, of, of starting to write about what had happened, what, what this, this incredible story that um, lapsed over several years, the emotions I felt all along the way, the, the twists and turns of, of this scenario. And I thought, I thought around that time, right after he went to prison, I'm thinking, wow, you know, maybe, maybe I should sit down and write a book and, and tell the world about what happened and the, the betrayal, the, the extreme case of betrayal that, that we fell victim to. And I thought maybe, maybe, maybe I should, you know, as, Ro- as Robin Roberts once said, you know, try to make your mess your message. And I thought about that and I'm thinking, you know, maybe, maybe I could benefit others. Maybe I could help others who might also find themselves in the same kind of predicament of the, of the lying, the deceit, the betrayal, the, the cheating, the stealing of the money. Maybe, maybe I could help empower other women out there and give them strength and, and fortitude to, to, you know, to look at look what happened to me and, and, and should they find themselves in the same kind of situation. I was still working at Channel 16, but in 2016, uh, the, the company that had owned uh, Channel 16 uh, turned to several of us at, at the station um, with a lot of years. And they said, you know, um, we're going to be offering some buyouts to various people who have had, you know, a long career in here. And the severance package was just incredible. And it was just very, very generous on the part of the company. And I thought, you know, maybe this could be my way of really starting to write the book. I will have time. I will finally have time. I could spend the year of, of enjoying a nice severance package and start writing the book. So I decided, I decided to take the buyout along with several others at the station. And uh, a few days after I said goodbye to the viewers one last time, I started writing the book. So the book just at, at this recording, the book just came out uh, about a month ago. Um, to get that first box of books had to be such an emotionally wrenching moment of both accomplishment and at the same time, here is your whole tragic, 
heart-wrenching story laid out for everybody to read and know everything about you, Marisa. Mm -hmm. For the world to see. And it's amazing. I've been hearing this since the book was, was published. Readers who say, we had no idea that you went through all of this. We only truly know of what happened only from the news reports that your station gave both in 2008 and 2012. But we had no idea the depth of the turmoil and the agony and the anguish and the despair the, and the suffering that you went through until we read all the details of your book. And you mentioned about receiving the first box. And I remember, I remember the publisher. I remember that day. I remember opening up the, the first box of books that they sent. And, um, you know, as much as I, th I think, you know, when you publish a novel and I think there's, there's, there's truly excitement and, and, and happiness, I have to say that there wasn't that happiness. Um, there was excitement, but there wasn't that happiness. And I think it's because I, I don't celebrate this book at all. I don't, I don't celebrate the story. There's nothing to celebrate. It's raw. It's dark. It's disturbing. It's totally unflattering, I think, to me. Um, but what I do celebrate is the courage and the bravery I had to tell a story that I believe needed to be told in the hopes of helping others who may find themselves in the same kind of situation and may find themselves the victim of horrible betrayal. It is a story of survival, right? Do you consider yourself to be a survivor? You know, that that's a very good question. I, at times where I think that I've put all of this behind me and I, I, I did survive, um, I, I do look back and, and, you know, I, I think, I think about it quite often. And I think about, you know, did I do the right things about, you know, when it came to protecting my, my girls, should I been, should I have been more forthright with information with them? I mean, after all, they were they were older, especially in 2012. I've always been filled with with self doubt and second guessing a, a lot of what I think and what I do. And and uh, yeah, as I think as much as I want to say that I did survive this, um, in a way, I question whether you ever do. I mean, especially something like this. And I think I will question for a long, long time whether I have survived. Everything changed. I mean, my, my whole financial well-being changed. It was just everything. Uh, I had a question at one of the book signings yesterday from a woman. I was very surprised when she asked this. She said, have you dated again? And I said, no. I have not. And, you know, they looked, the crowd looked at me and, and I knew what they were thinking. They were probably thinking, you know, are, are you ever going to be in a position where you're going to trust a man again to, to be in a relationship like that? And, you know, I, I can't answer. I think right now 
I'm I'm keeping my distance. I'm I'm still I'm still healing in a way. And I you know and after after this book came out and and you know going over it again and then just just talking about it again, it's yeah, you you suddenly realize that I think the healing you're still going through a lot of healing and I think the healing process is going to continue. Work in progress. Work in progress. I can't imagine the courage it took for Marisa to show up every day on the air, knowing her co-workers and the TV audience were aware of the ugly charges against her husband. Navigating that minefield had to be excruciating and lonely. To be able to share that ugly trauma with others in a book is another badge of courage. Marisa's book is called Just Checking Scores, available on Amazon and other booksellers. It is a riveting and heartbreaking account of what happened to her, a respected news anchor whose life was shattered by the deceit and crimes of her husband. I love that one of Marisa's lessons was to stop feeling sorry for herself. Bad things happen to good people. It's how we react and move forward that really defines who we are. And as Marisa said, it's a process. We have to give ourselves grace through it. Thanks for listening. If you were inspired by this episode of Just a Moment or know someone who might benefit from this story, please share this episode and subscribe. I have many more stories to share with you in just a moment.